0: If you are a trauma-informed clinician that has been thinking a lot about how people make choices, you are not alone. And in today's episode of the Zero Disturbance podcast, I am going to dive in with you to think about how to think when it comes to clinical choices with our clients. We hear terms like, I'm client-centered, I'm following the script because that's the right thing to do. And what I'd like to introduce to all of you is a shared decision-making model that gives us a little bit more language and more nuance to have richer conversations and consultation and on Facebook groups. Now, if you're like me, you probably didn't get this information in your clinical training previously. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to explore what I was studying and teaching at Stanford Medical School when I was there as the Director of Education and Quality Improvement, working alongside Dr. Clarence Braddock, who is a national leader among healthcare workers in the shared decision-making model. We're gonna understand that there are four categories of making choices with clients in the patient-physician relationship that we can easily and understandably apply to the client-therapist relationship my hope for you today is that you will come out of this podcast episode feeling clear about where you are within this model of making choices with your clients so that when someone comes at you about not following a script or making a modification, when someone comes at you for being too client-centered, you will not have to engage in a Unproductive conversation, you will instead be able to identify your orientation as well as theirs, which will help us, I think, as clinicians have more productive, helpful discussions with each other. So let's dive in. <music> Greetings, colleagues and friends. Cambria Evans here, the teaching and learning EMDR consultant. And we are going to solve all of the Facebook fighting today, you guys. <laughs> I'm about to bang my head against the wall if I see one more Facebook group conversation, whether it's in an EMDR group or another clinical group about people telling each other what's right and wrong. Now, I'm not talking about legal stuff. I'm not talking about ethical stuff. I'm talking about how people make clinical choices and how they engage with their clients about making those clinical choices. And I will be speaking a lot today about the EMDR community because I think in that community, we have a lot of trauma informed advanced clinicians there which is fantastic and we have a training uh basic training program that gives us a script that we are to follow and in that script there is not a lot of discussion around patient preferences there is not a lot of conversation about patient choices patient engagement it is very much a one sided script of this is what the clinician does to the client and i think what has always felt incongruent for me is that I don't clearly see a role of autonomy for the client clearly enough. Now, I imagine Francine felt that and did that in her sessions, I wasn't there. But in the script that we now have decades later, that is not always apparent to us, right? And so I wanna talk about something that I think is absent from our EMDR training and clinical trainings in general. And this is the idea of how do we make a shared decision with our clients, when we have a protocol, when we have a clinical framework, when we have a step-by-step process or a script uh, that we are to follow to do it right and be effective. Now, when I was at Stanford uh, many years ago before I was a clinician in, in private practice, Part of my role was partnering with the medical school faculty to help residents, medical students, fellows, even other faculty coming in from other countries to our Stanford Faculty Development Center to understand about professionalism. And one of the modules in our professionalism curriculum was called Shared Decision Making. And this was an entire module dedicated to helping physicians understand how to make ethical, respectful choices with their patients. And in this model, we think about the balance between uh, achieving health, health outcomes for patients, and their sense of autonomy. And there is nothing more important in a mental health relationship, a therapeutic relationship between therapist and client, than getting into that relational autonomy piece, right? So I'm going to be encouraging all of you to think with me about how you do this. Maybe you have a consultant who tends to tell you what the right way and the wrong way is, and you're feeling like, gosh, where's where's the client in all of this? Where does the client get to make choices? What's important to the client? How are we prioritizing or triaging what's clinically relevant, right? Because for EMDR, for example, the purpose of EMDR is to get through a target. Now, if you go to some basic trainings, they'll say do first or worst, right? But for some clients, that is not within their autonomy to start there. It is not within their preferences or values to start there because there might be other clinical considerations that are more relational about attachment repair that need to happen first or in parallel with a target completion. So today we're going to talk about four categories of shared decision-making okay? And I'm going to be pulling up, we're, we're y'all, we're going to time travel, okay? I'm pulling up a paper from 1992. <laughs> I was 12 and rocking braces when this paper came out, <laughs> okay? Um, it is called The Four Models of the Physician-Patient Relationship. It is by Manuel Emanuel. You're welcome to Google this. It is in a peer-reviewed paper called JAMA, okay? So this was reviewed by by peers of uh, physicians. And in this paper, these two physicians and PhDs talk about this struggle that had been happening back in 1992, but it really started decades before that, the struggle between autonomy and health, right? And there was this movement to kind of curtail the, the dominance of physicians and healthcare. And this inf- uh, really impacted how informed consent happened. And it was supposed to help physicians move away from the paternalistic model into a more client-centered model. And as a result of that conversation, there are actually three categories where we we can say something is client-centered, right? And I think it's important for us to to understand, well, what is the paternalistic model? Why are we moving away from that, right? How can I be client-centered in a way that is productive, And it's important for us to be able to self-identify what category we're in, okay? So so let's dive into this. So what's interesting is that in the paternalistic model that we're trying to move away from, right, when we think about patient values, in this model, the, the values are considered to be objective and shared by the physician and patient. So it's kind of like assumed, right, that, oh, we're all on the same page here. And, and the objective is is this. It's the procedure, right? And so for EMGR clinicians, that is basically putting on this assumption that like you are coming here to complete this trauma target. okay? Now that's not wrong and that's not bad. <laughs> but but let's dive in deeper to what might be missing from this approach, okay? In the paternalistic model, it is believed that the physician's obligation or the therapist's obligation is to promote the patient's well-being independently of the patient's current preferences, okay? Now, here's where I think people have experiences with EMDR clinicians where they walk away and say, EMDR didn't work for me. EMDR didn't work for me because I couldn't do first or worst. EMDR didn't work for me because I dissociated and my, and my therapist told me I wasn't ready and I had to go do parts work for like two years, Okay. In the paternalistic model, right, the conception of the patient's autonomy is basically that that they will agree to these objective values. Like, it's just assumed, like, well, of course the client's going to want to finish their first or worst target. Or, of course, the client's going to want to not talk in phase four because they're not supposed to. And the fastest way to get to the end is for them to not talk too much, right? All of these clinical choices that we're making based on a script that was designed for a certain kind of client, right? And doesn't really allow for us to necessarily be client-centered, all right? The conception of the physician's role or the therapist's role in the paternalistic model is the guardian, right? Now, this is potentially re-traumatizing, isn't it? Because think about the people that come work with us. A lot of them have relational trauma, attachment trauma, if we take on this role of, here's what we're doing, <laughs> and I'm assuming you're on board with that because we have our things to do and our rules to follow, could that be re-traumatizing? 100%, 100%. And a lot of my consultation cases have actually been other, has been consultees that have worked with other consultants who have been in the paternalistic model. And have encouraged them to be in the paternalistic model with their clients and have found dead ends, right? Or have found re-traumatization during processing, um, have found ineffective clinical outcomes and not a lot of repair around relational trauma or attachment trauma, quite honestly. So this, and you're welcome to look this paper up and learn more about this. But but really the paternalistic model is um, something that existed decades ago, like you know, before the 1970s, so, you know, over 50 years ago, and really in the medical field in general, they're moving away from this. This this is looked on as not being ethical, okay? So what does it mean to be client-centered? Well, the most extreme version of being client-centered is what's called the informative model, okay? And, And in the informative model, the assumption is that the patient's values are defined, fixed, and they're known to the patient. Right. So it's kind of like, oh, you know exactly what you want. And um, and those things are are fixed and and not going to move. Right. And so in this model, the physician's obligation or the therapist's obligation then is just to provide relevant factual information and literally just implement whatever the patient or the client wants for their intervention. Right. So the equivalent of this might be something like, um, someone comes in and I'm like, you know, hey, what do you what do you want to work on? Uh, I don't know. I feel anxious, okay? And we kind of figure out their history and their resourcing. and and maybe i'll I'll think in my head, well, I know I know what the core issue is here. I know I know what first or worst is with this client, but I can't say that. I can't uh, advise anything about how to do that because my job is simply to just say, like here's all the possible targets. you know, where do you want to start? Now that's not wrong or bad either, right? But I think what's missing here is that the, the wisdom or the knowledge of the clinician might not be utilized effectively because we're just pendulum swinging over to like just being almost technicians and just saying, here's your choices, right? Now, in the informative model, there is a conception of the patient's or the the client's autonomy that they have choices and total control over their medical care or therapeutic treatment. Now, we could easily see that when anything is in an extreme side, right, paternalistic, informative. They, these are both on kind of opposite ends of the spectrum that we're talking about here. And this might be too client-centered, right? This this, this is assuming that, that clients know exactly how they feel and believe and exactly what they want and doesn't leave a lot of room for those things to be um, discussed or developed along with the, the therapist. And then in this uh, informative model, the conception of the physician's role or the therapist's role is... I'm just a competent technical expert, and that's it. Which again, I think has so many limitations, right? So I think we can all agree listening to this or maybe looking at this paper along with me is that the paternalistic model has severe limitations and the informative model being 100% client-centered, right, has severe limitations. So so what's in the middle, right? What's in the middle? And as we're thinking about this model, you might already be identifying past teachers, trainers, consultants who have been paternalistic. You might be identifying the same for people who have been more kind of in the informative category, right? I want to invite you to consider the middle with me to have a nice balance. And there's two buckets in the middle, okay? Closest to the informative model is the interpretive model, okay? And here, we want to understand that is the it is the therapist's role, really, to gather, understand, and interpret relevant patient values and also inform the patient what those might be and then interpret, right, with them and then implement the patient's selected intervention, okay? Now, in this interpretive model... There is a conception of the patient's autonomy that they understand themselves relevant to the medical care. And really the role of the physician or the therapist here is to be kind of like a counselor or an advisor, right? Um, So this model is getting us, I think, closer to what we want, right? Closer to that relational piece, um, conversation. Now, what is recommended in this paper from 1992 (laughs) was none of these three, (laughs) right? What is recommended is what's called the deliberative model. And the deliberative model is kind of, if it's informative, interpretive, deliberative, paternalistic, right? So in the deliberative model, we are open to developing the patient's values. And we're having moral conversations, right? And this is literally what therapy is. I mean, in the therapeutic relationship, in that conversation, when we're doing our history taking in phase one, we're thinking about resourcing in phase two, all along that process as we're developing relationship with our clients, we are being curious about what's there in terms of values kind of moral integrity, treatment goals. And we're always thinking about like learning and developing as we go. We know that nothing is fixed. Nothing should be fixed necessarily when people come in, okay? So therefore, it is the physician's or the therapist's obligation in the deliberative model, right, to really articulate and persuade the patient or client of the most admirable values, okay? And also inform the patient about what they're reflecting back and and seeing, and implementing the patient's selected intervention, okay? So this is is kind of a modification of the interpretive model in the sense that the physician or the therapist is actually taking a more active role in a conversation about morals and values developing (laughs) instead of fixed, right? And the conception of the patient's or the client's autonomy in this deliberative model is that there is a... um, moral self-development that's relevant to the medical care. And, and in this model, in the deliberative model, the therapist or physician is really a friend or a teacher. And for me, I've always been a teacher my whole life. I, I love teaching. I love learning. And if you're listening to this podcast, I imagine that resonates with you. Maybe maybe you're already working in a deliberative model. Maybe you're already like, yeah, Cambria, I, you're preaching to the choir. I'm on board here. <laughs> right? Like, why are we talking about this? And here's why. Here's why we're talking about it. As a learner, if you are noticing that you are in a deliberative model of shared decision-making with your clients, but you have a consultant or you have a trainer who's in the paternalistic model, it is hard and awkward to have a conversation with somebody when you're in different places. And I think what's frustrating for people is that Instead of saying like, "Hey, I'm coming from this deliberative model of making, you know, uh, shared choices with my clients," it sounds like you're coming from the paternalistic model. Can you help me understand where you are on the spectrum? That is a conversation I think that has more efficiency and impact in the teacher learner relationship, right? I mean, we're we're always in consultation. We're always in training. We're always in therapy. <laughs> we're always learning, right? And it's so important that we have a clear sense, even when we're choosing our consultants or choosing our trainers to understand what model are they coming from. Right. I mean, you'll you'll notice that there are what people have called like the first generations of EMGR trainers who trained with Francine. And they're kind of, you know, a lot of them are kind of what they call like purists, right? And culturally, during that time, people now in their 60s and 70s grew up in a more paternalistic medical model. They grew up in a more paternalistic society in general. So it's not shocking or surprising that some of those, that style or values is is coming into the clinical space. And I think what's important is that in the EMDR community, in the therapeutic community in general, that we make sure that we are staying up to date in congruence with what is being published in uh, physician medical journals. And y'all, again, 1992, was that 30 years ago? (laughs) 30 years ago. So how is it that physicians and nurses were talking about this and publishing about this 30 years ago? And us as therapists never got this, never got this framework? never got permission to understand that when someone says, follow these rules in a rigid way, that they're coming from a paternalistic model where the patient or client's values aren't being understood. They're not being defined with with the patient or client and they are not being developed as part of the protocol, as part of the choices we make along the way. And for those of us that are EMDR clinicians, we know there's a lot of choices, y'all. I mean, we we have the eight phases. We have the AIP model. We have the script, whatever version of the script you got in your training. They're all similar-ish. But there's a lot of choices there, right? So many choices. I mean, these are the most common questions I get as a consultant. What target should I start with? Should I have patients fill out a timeline of their trauma? If I have a, a client who's talking a lot in phase four processing, is that okay? Right. I was in a Facebook conversation uh, last week and someone asked that question. It's the question I see literally every day in these groups. And someone chimed in and said, you know, absolutely not. The brain works faster than your mouth. And yes, that's true. Technically, as a technician, right? Yes, it is true. The brain connects and processes faster than our mouths can talk. Right. But if we were to be in a deliberative model of shared decision making, What that looks like with our client is to say, hey, we're in phase four. Awesome, we're going to process this target that we've chosen together. And here's what the protocol says for phase four. It says that, you know, when the BLS is going, whether it's eye movements or tactile or other, you know, the brain processes faster than than talking. So one strong recommendation is that we don't do a lot of talking between sets or during processing. Now. If we have a client who's neurodivergent, we are going to want to know that and we're going to want to understand that one of these clients' values or one of the clients' traumas to repair in the therapeutic relationship might be the fact that they have had to live in what's called, you know, for lack of, of a better word, a neurotypical world, which by the way is traumatizing. And they've always had to bend themselves and mask and do all these things to to fit into these boxes. If I have a neurodivergent client and we have a conversation about what that means for them, if I understand that one of their values that they're developing a belief of, I have a place in the world, I don't have to contort myself to fit into a box, it is now re-traumatizing to ask them not to talk during phase four if they are the type of neurodivergent client that needs to process externally to be able to learn. I said what I said. Think about it, right? We are not meant to prioritize rules or guidelines if they are re-traumatizing. And in the deliberative model, we know all that. We know our client, right? And we explain to the client the nooks and crannies of the protocol and what choices they have along the way. If we are in the paternalistic model, we are at risk for re-traumatizing the client in this example, right? We are at risk for re-traumatizing if we say, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, you're not supposed to talk in phase four, you're doing it wrong. Okay. Now I'm, I'm clearly exaggerating for dramatic effect and impact, but y'all understand what I'm saying, right? Let me think about target selection. It's the same thing. Now I'll, I'll share one more example about phase four talking before I go to target selection, because I think this is important as well. I have had many clients who grew up in houses where they were not allowed to speak, they were not allowed to have a voice. Uh, I work with many clients in the LGBTQ plus community, the neurodivergent community. I work with lots of women. These are groups who have been um, told to be quiet in so many ways by society, by their families. And I will be damned if I'm going to be a part of that traumatizing message. And so sometimes, y'all stick with me, I believe it is therapeutically important if I have somebody in phase four who has been in an oppressed group without a voice, I actually ask them, I'll actually say to them, you know, in phase four, like technically with the protocol, you're not supposed to talk a lot because your brain and your mouth and blah, blah, blah. There's a the science. But if you want to say anything during processing or in between sets, and you want to have your voice, please Utilize this relationship. Utilize this space for you to do that because that is a reparative exercise. And I, as the clinician, I'm going to triage that as more important than not talking. Yeah, is the processing going to happen slower? Sure. Is that important? If someone finally gets to be in a room and say what is true, maybe even scream it and talk as much as they want to? I say that is more important. And if we get there slower, if they're being finishing the target slower, I'm fine with that because the client has signed off on that with me, right? Because how I think about EMDR is that we aren't just finishing a target, right? In the paternalistic model, yes, that is the objective that we think everyone is agreeing to. But in the deliberative model, we understand there are there are multiple objectives to the relationship. Yeah, finishing a target's part of it. That's true. And the permission, safety, and quality of the relationship is also part of it, right? The the client's experience of themselves during the process is also part of it, right? Let's talk about target selection. First and worst, if I could have a meeting with every EMDR trainer and tell them to stop saying this, I would, and here's why. The idea that first and worst is best drives me bananas. And I really have a lot of respect for Dolores Mascara's work, the progressive approach, where she helps us understand that sometimes first and worst, right, that this this core trauma is not always the best place to start. Because for a lot of our clients who were overwhelmed, who did not have control or choice, who were pushed into abuse, uh, pushed into relationships that were unsafe, Any of that. I am not going to re traumatize them by saying, well, the best thing really is first and worst. And if we don't do that, then, you know, we're just kind of piddling around, right? We can see what's core. And isn't it more reparative and therapeutically healthy in the deliberative model to say, I understand your history. I understand your values now in your healing journey is to have choices, to have control, to not. Have to be overwhelmed in your adult body as you were overwhelmed as a child, or or during that sexual assault. I'm not going to do that to you. I'm not going to participate in that. Right. This space is different. You get to have a different experience of yourself. Okay. And if someone needs to ease into this and do a peripheral target that's related but not the target, that is more clinically appropriate coming from the deliberative model. Then start with first or worst that's the best thing to do. That's what we say in the paternalistic model. If you have an EMDR trainer who says, first and worst for clients, they are talking to you from a paternalistic model of shared decision-making. And you have to decide as a clinician and your ethical integrity, am I going to meet them there in the paternalistic model? Or am I going to be in the deliberative model? Because that is what medical journals invited us to do 30 years ago. Think about it. I'm gonna give one more example about a paternalistic model comment that you might've heard in consultation because it also (laughs) drives me crazy. If you have a consultant who says that you should do eye movements with your client because eye movements are best and the research shows that they are, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, the research is more nuanced, nuanced on that um, in terms of just like, it's better. Better for who? <laughs> let's, let's unpack that a little bit, right? So if I have a client who has ever been hit uh, or any kind of physical assault, I never raise my hand to them or put my hand in front of their face. I never do that and I talk to them about that and I say we can do eye movements like this but I'm I don't want to to put that in your face like that unless you're okay with that right there are many ways to achieve processing with EMDR we can do tactile buzzers we can do eye movements. Doesn't even have to be my hand. Now we're on the computer. We can do a you know, little bouncy ball going back and forth across the screen. We can do post-it notes on the computer. So the client's going back and forth with, with post-it notes, right? All sorts of ways to do BLS. And you are still doing EMGR even if you're not doing eye movements, right? You're still doing BLS. And, and if you take, you know, the EMGR 2.0 training, they've even said that, you know, taxing the working memory, you don't even need. According to their research, eye movements that go side to side. You can do you can do them up and down. You can do them like this diagonally, right? You can do other working memory tasks like progressive counting, like Ricky Greenwald. You can stand up and move your feet, right? So I want you to understand that in the paternalistic model, there is an assumption that the client and the therapist are all in the same agreement about the values and the objective. And I want you to understand that if you really want to serve your clients, if you really want to have fun with EMDR, I would invite you to really step into the deliberative model. And if you're there already, hello, nice to see you here. (laughs) I wanna invite you to join me that when you see somebody speaking to someone else in a Facebook group or consultation group or training from the paternalistic model, that you name it. It sounds like you're coming from the paternalistic model of medical care, of shared decision-making. How would this clinical case with EMGR look in the deliberative model? Wouldn't that be a productive conversation? And if we're gonna have it from the paternalistic model, Fine, let's finish that conversation, but then can we also have it from a deliberative model? Can we have it from both? So that I, as the clinician, can develop my clinical reasoning skills and figure out what being client-centered is for me so that people don't walk away from EMDR thinking, ah, that doesn't work for me. It's too rigid. I didn't feel seen. I felt re-traumatized, right? These are all things that we hear and, and kind of whisper about when it comes to that paternalistic model of interpreting EMDR. So I hope this gives you food for thought. I hope it gives you some some peace (laughs) if you find yourself in a disagreement or argument with a a consultee or a consultant or um, another trainer or someone on Facebook. Because I think when we understand where someone's coming from, it gives us us a clarity and a peace and it allows us to not get caught up in um, I'm right and you're wrong, right? We're talking about our values, And I'm very excited that there is a movement in uh, trauma-informed care uh, in the EMDR community to be in a deliberative model, right? A lot of these advanced trainings are teaching us modifications to work with populations that need to have their values, their, their context, the way their brains are wired considered instead of shamed or quieted, or invited to put in a box, which is just re-traumatizing their experience uh, and the reason they're in therapy in the first place. So I hope that this was helpful for y'all. Um, I I love <laughs> bringing in what I've learned from Stanford Medical School, teaching there, uh, into the therapeutic community. Uh, I do it all the time uh, in my consultation program, and so if this is like driving with you, if this is resonating with you. I I wanna invite you to come and be with us. Um, this is how we this is how we talk, this is how we think. And it's contagious because it makes sense. Uh so I would invite you to apply to the consultation program. Uh enrollment's gonna close July 30th for the 2022 cohort. And doors are gonna close and we're not gonna have our next cohort until uh 2023. Uh, We already have got a fantastic group graduated. We have an amazing alumni alumni program. We have amazing faculty this year. Really excited about this opportunity. It's literally what I wish I would have had coming up uh, in my therapeutic career. And I'm so excited to offer it to you. So if you want to learn more, please go ahead and apply. There's a link below. And in the meantime, y'all, you know, always rooting for you. Um, Thank you for coming on here with me to think about how to think. These conversations mean a lot to me. And I've had multiple conversations like this in the consultation program, privately with other consultants and trainers and um, people in in leadership in the mental health field. And so it's nice to bring these to you for free as a resource to help you be your best, calmest, happiest self. So I will be in your ear soon. Uh, Looking forward to that. And in the meantime, please stay safe and healthy. And I'm rooting for your success. Take care. We'll be right back. back.